Welcome to Fanboy and the Hater, a podcast hosted and produced by Mike Hall and Jim Harris, where we discuss the best and worst in movies, TV, and pop culture, edited by Jim Harris, and music by Mike Hall. In this episode, we're going to get historical-ish. We're going to discuss movies and television shows that use history in their storytelling. Entertainment only, so no documentaries, and no recent history. So only history far back enough that there's no one alive now to refute its story. So we're going to break this down into three different categories. Mike, why don't you give us a rundown of what our three categories are? Well, to start with that, I like history a lot, right? Do you know what I like more than history? What's that? Fictional history. Fictional history! <laughs> and even more than that, mythology. And when you get to a point where the history and the mythology are intertwined and hard to figure out what's what, I love it. So the first example that I came up with when thinking about this was possible historical events that could have inspired a myth or legend. Second examples would be exaggerated historical events for entertainment, which could be a path to a myth or legend later down the road. And then also just stories being told that are loosely based on historical events or time periods. So you want to get us started on the first first section there, the possible historical events that could have inspired a myth or legend? Certainly. So we're going to go through, and this we're each going to lead a discussion using two examples. So the first one I would like you to start with, actually, <laughs> is the movie Troy. Yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense, because this movie is what kind of inspired the whole conversation anyway. Yes, this is how we got on this topic of, of hey, we should do a, a historical reimagining episode because of Troy. Yeah, so I love Troy. I think it's a really underrated movie. I get that it's not necessarily historically accurate, but it's kind of one of those parts of history that we don't necessarily know for sure what is accurate. A lot of pieces of history are lost in wartime people burn documents Things get lost in translation or, you know, the winner tells the story. So it's whatever the winner decides happened is how it happened. So we don't really know how things happened exactly. And in the case of that, it's also ancient history that it's going so far back in some respects before written history or, or definitely before there was widespread literacy, before people yeah. could even read or write, where most history was quote-unquote recorded by people repeating the story, saying it to someone else. So it wasn't so much written down. So historians and archaeologists believe that there may actually have been a historical city of Troy. And obviously Greece existed. <laughs> 
So the, the Greek city-states that are mentioned in it are real. But whether or not there actually was a Trojan War, the movie is actually based on Homer's Iliad, which is one of the oldest pieces of world literature. So it is based more on a myth and a legend. And who knows how much of actual history is entwined in it. But because it's ancient history... And it had to be passed down to us from a period when there was less literacy. It must have been a really good story because it survived to the modern day. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues with the way the stories were told then is everybody likes to exaggerate and add things. And everybody's always has played the game telephone. <laughs> Those stories are never the same when they're told a second time by somebody else. You know, this is the way I remember it being told. And so things get lost. Things get exaggerated. Small things become big things, and just really cool people become heroes. Exactly. So imagine playing the game of telephone for centuries right. before someone actually wrote it down. <laughs> so the movie, for a literature nerd like me, because in college I actually, for a while, was a literature major. I switched, started off as computer science and went back to computer science to finish my degree. But for a while, I was a literature major, so I actually did read the Iliad. It was painful, but I actually did read it. So to me, it's kind of cool to watch the movie. In my case, I'm actually seeing how much is it actually like the epic poem that it's based on, which is not how you have to approach the movie, but that was one of the things that, that drew me in of sort of not so much historical accuracy because it's so far back, you really can't say that, but mythological accuracy also may or may not have been important. But those are the things that I was looking at when I watched the movie. And obviously, it's entertainment. So changes have to be made. It's also a movie. So things have to be changed about it to make it flow differently than its source material. But it's not bad. I mean, it, it compresses the... 10-year Trojan War in Homer's Iliad down to just three weeks. One of the interesting things to me is the gods were removed as characters. I mean, there were temples to the gods in the movie, but the mythological aspect or quasi-religious aspect of it is removed because in Homer's Iliad, the gods actually were characters. Mm-hmm who interacted with and spoke to people and, and picked sides of who they wanted to win in the war between the Greeks and the Trojans. Uh, and that aspect is absent from a movie. So that's actually one of the things that makes me like this a lot is it leaves things open to being able to understand how, when this story was retold, gods could be added as players. And and especially when this movie when I the first time I watched it when it went from being just a pretty fun movie to oh my god I really love it was the end when you have Achilles laying there with a bunch of arrows around him but only one still in him and that one is in his heel. And the sol other soldiers come in and they see oh all these other arrows must not have penetrated only the one that went through the heel. And so that can that could spur the myth of Achilles because over the years of watching him fight, nobody's ever seen him injured before. That's taken a more grounded quasi historical look at the character. Mm -hmm. The thing that I would have, I mean, again, it, it wasn't what they did, 
But in the actual epic poem, that's one of the places where the gods came into the equation. Like the story of Achilles' heel is left open to that interpretation that you just described. As opposed to in the epic poem, Achilles was invulnerable. He could not be injured anywhere other than his heel because his mother had dipped him in the river Styx as a child and because she had to hold on to one foot so he didn't, she didn't lose him in the river, that was the only part of his body that wasn't submerged. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that's why that heel was the only place he could be hurt. But that mythological thing is not in the movie at all. No, but that's, that's exactly what makes me enjoy this is the, the reverse engineering of this is something that could have happened that when that story was told over centuries, it becomes the myth of, you know, it goes from, oh, we just never saw him get hurt before. And then the only thing we see is this in his heel to eventually down the line being that myth of, oh, he couldn't be hurt because his mother had made him invulnerable except for his heel because she had to hold on somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so that that's the fascinating way for me to look at this movie and, and many other movies like this of here's something that could could have actually happened in real world with physics and everything that over the years of storytelling becomes this huge myth legend whatever and that's that's what's fun for me about this movie i agree i mean the only other really explicit thing from again i don't think what i just talked about wouldn't really have added anything to the movie nor would the the judgment of Paris have added anything to the movie. And that's another thing from the epic poem and for Greek mythology of why the goddesses were mad about the Trojan War. And this is the story of the golden apple. Mm-hmm. The golden apple was had a, was thrown into a, a meeting of the gods and it said, for the most fair. And the goddesses argued over who it was for Paris was believed to be one of the most beautiful humans. So the goddesses brought Paris and said, tell us who this apple is for. And it was Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite that were basically trying to bribe Paris into things that they would give him if he picked them. And it was Aphrodite who said, hey, pick me and I'll give you Helen, the most beautiful female woman ever. And that made Aphrodite side with the Trojans and Hera and Athena side with the Greeks because they were mad about getting spermed. Again, that would not add anything at all to the movie. I think that would have ruined the movie. Again, the conscious decision to completely remove the gods from the equation. And the only other thing, going back to the Achilles thing, the way that Achilles was killed in Homer, and actually he wasn't even killed in the Iliad, the, the Iliad actually ends with the death of Hector. So the end of the Trojan War actually is taken from other mythological sources and also in part from Homer's The Odyssey because there's some flashback scenes in that. But it's actually the god Apollo, who among other things was the god of archery, who steadies Paris's hand and makes sure that the arrow that Paris shoots actually hits Achilles in the one spot that would kill him. Again, it doesn't really take anything away from the movie that that's not in there, but it does make a better potentially historical reimagining type movie 
when you take the gods out of it explicitly, they're just there as there are temples to the gods and there's some illusions that the gods may have been angered from various things that happened in the movie, but that's all taken out and can be viewed as superstition. And the movie is more of a practical, I guess, for lack of a better word, war movie. Right. Which could have been the basis for legends, like you said, warriors that were just really good becoming legendary over time because of stories that were told about them. Yeah. And, and to me, that's that's what makes the difference between a movie like Troy being good and fun and I can watch it a lot versus something like Clash of the Titans that is all about gods and how gods interact and blah, blah, blah. And it's boring. It should be great and epic, but ultimately it's boring. I prefer the movie. And, and that's why I say to me, it would have, if you to added all that stuff, yeah, it would have been more quote unquote historically accurate or mythology accurate, but I don't want it to be mythology accurate. I want to think about how could this have actually happened? What could have been the real base? And in reality, again, this is going back to ancient history, but a lot of these stories were passed on by word of mouth. A lot of what I just said, most audiences at that time wouldn't have to be told. Like most audiences would already know the story of the golden apple. Mm -hmm. They would already know the story of Achilles heel because they, they themselves were already popular stories. So that background information wouldn't even need to be told to most audiences because they would already know. So if you're a, a literature nerd like me, I know it too. But again, it didn't take anything away from the movie that it wasn't included there. Nor did it bother me that it did, did technically go beyond the end of the uh, Homer's Iliad. Nor, again, because it's a movie and it was going to be close-ended, Agamemnon who's made out to be the, the real bad guy, gets killed in the movie. He doesn't get killed in Homer's Iliad. Agamemnon actually is a character in a lot of other Greek plays and stories. He gets his eventually, but he doesn't get killed in the Iliad. But it makes for better... It brings the story kind of full circle to have him get killed by the woman who he took away from Achilles that caused the rift for why Achilles wasn't fighting and to have her end up killing him in the end made good narrative sense for the movie, but from the actual source material, that doesn't happen. Right. Fair enough. Plus, I think this movie, this movie needs to be called out for one mythological, legendary thing. Sean Bean does not die. Oh! The guy who dies in everything did not die in Troy. <laughs> He died in the sequel that never got made. <laughs> so he plays Odysseus, the man who came up with the idea of the Trojan horse, which is also not in the Iliad. It's in the Odyssey, technically kind of like the sequel to the Iliad. But he is played by Sean Bean in the movie, and he survives. Maybe the only, like, epic movie that Sean Bean has ever been in where he doesn't die. <laughs> yeah. They, they must have made this one first be yes, before they exactly. realized it. So speaking of movies based on the Odyssey, it looks like you got a pretty good example coming up here. Yeah, I, and this is exactly why I chose this. This is a very weird movie to include in this episode, but I put down, Oh, brother, where art thou? <laughs> <laughs> 
which is a really weird, it's, it's very unlike the other movies and TV shows we're going to talk about. But the main reason that I brought it up is because the movie is loosely based on Homer's Odyssey. So because we were talking about Troy, it made me think of Oh Brother, We're Out Thou, which is a Coen Brothers movie. It actually happens to be the favorite movie of one of our friends. <laughs> and it's, it's a satire and it's a comedy. But the thing that was always amusing to me when I first saw the movie, I was like, huh, is this based on the Odyssey? Because like the names of the characters and some of the things that happened during the movie, I was like, this sounds really familiar. And then afterwards, I was like, yep, it was. And it's funny, the, the Coen brothers described the Homer's Odyssey as one of their favorite storytelling frameworks, although they admit they never read the epic poem. Funnily enough, or funnily, humorously enough to me, Tim Blake <laughs> Nelson, who is the actor who plays uh, one of the um, Soggy Bottom Boys uh, in the movie, actually did read the Odyssey because he actually has a degree in classical literature from Brown University. So it was kind of amusing to me that he was in the movie because he actually did know the classical literature background of the movie. It's, it's a weird example of a movie, but George Clooney plays a character named Ulysses, which is the Roman version of, uh, of Odysseus. And most of the characters in the movie are actually from the Odyssey. So there's like John Goodman only has one eye because he's playing the Cyclops. Penelope, played by Holly Hunter, who is George Clooney's wife, is Ulysses' wife, Penelope, from the epic poem. And there's even the three sirens uh, in Oh Brother, We're Out Thou. They just get them drunk and leave them in the field and steal all their money. But pretty much the entire narrative framework of the movie is based on Homer's Odyssey. Although, again, the main difference is it's a satire. It's a comedy. I think it actually is a good movie. But it probably is kind of weird to include it in, in this episode. So I'm going to get really personal here for a minute. Okay. And I don't think you knew this. So Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is actually one of my favorite movies. Oh, cool. It, it ranks way up there. And it was the reason, I mean, besides being a good movie, it was also my grandfather's, one of his favorite movies. And it was one of the few pop culture type things that we actually connected on. And he loved it because of the way presented that time, because he said it was actually really accurate. So he, he really connected with it. And so, I mean, long story short, my, my grandpa, when he was getting close to the end, he was in the hospital for a really long time. And so, you know, I, I would take, you know, night shift. I would stay with him in the hospital at night. And then we would kind of rotate through and other people will come, family members would come in the morning. And he was, to a point where he couldn't really speak anymore. And my cousin and I were, were there with him and I brought my laptop in that movie and I set it up in front of him and we all watched Oh Brother Arthur together. And even though he couldn't really respond, you could see he was, he was smiling and you, like a tear was forming in his eye cause he was laughing even though he couldn't really laugh. And so that was just kind of always been a, a treasured moment for me. Uh, for that movie, but it was, it was hard for me to watch that movie for a few years after he passed away. Cause that's all I could think about was that moment. I can watch it again now, but that that's actually just a really special movie to me. That's understandable. Has nothing to do with this episode. 
No, but I mean, it is it is interesting. Though. I mean, because I think the movie I think was the nineteen I forget nineteen fifties nineteen. I think it was like the twenties. I thought maybe it was yeah, maybe it was earlier than that twenties or thirties. I'm not sure exactly. You finish your thought, and I'll look it up. Okay, yeah. So I mean, it's 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 out of place in this because again, it actually was set. The movie is fictionally set in America and in the early 20th century, which kind of goes against our thing that we had said earlier about having a time period that's not far enough back in history that everybody, no one's alive that can remember it. But this is an exception to that because I only put it on the list because of the connection to Homer's Odyssey being used as the as the narrative framework for the movie. 1930s. That makes more sense, actually. The post-Depression era. Yeah. Dust Bowl type of thing. Yep. And if I'm re- remembering right, my, my grandpa was born in 33, I believe, somewhere around in there. And so that just, for him, it was childhood memories of, oh my God, this is how people acted. This is how people spoke. This is how dumb people were. Yeah, my, my mother was born in 1929 and my grandmother in 1900. So yeah, they had said similar things that that aspect of the movie was relatively accurate. So let's get back to a, an example that's probably more apropos to the historical reimaginings concept of this episode. What's your second example? And category one, again, as a reminder to folks, is an imagining of possible historical events that could have inspired a myth or legend. So what's your second example of that, Mike? The show Vikings. I, that, I don't watch a lot of TV shows. I loved Vikings, partially because I just, I love Vikings. I mean, that's... (laughs) In general, you just love the idea of Vikings, okay. Right, exactly. That's, that's, if I had a favorite group of historical people, it's Vikings. (laughs) So... (laughs) What what specifically about them is, makes them your favorite? I just feel connected to them. I am sure my ancestry involves... A large number of Vikings. That, that's just kind of where I'm from. That's just what I feel connected to. So, well, that's a tr- I mean, I didn't see the entire series, but I did. I I watched most of it. It's also been a while, so I I don't remember it terribly well. But I know that it it portrayed the Viking Age, which is based on 13th century Norse legends, and there were some more historical references and events included in the show. And many of the characters were inspired by either real people from history or legend. But the showrunner, uh, Michael Hurst, uh, explained that they had to take liberties with the Vikings. And in part, it was because no one knows for sure what happened during the Dark Ages, which is when the Viking era, era was during 13th century Scandinavia. But he also explained it's like he wanted people to watch the show. So if we made a historically accurate show about Vikings, maybe a hundred people or a thousand people would watch it. He wanted millions of people to watch it. Right. So don't expect historical accuracy, both because it's difficult to truly be historically accurate about that time period. But again, it's entertainment. Right. Yes, it's not an accurate depiction of Viking culture or Viking religion or Viking um, warrior uh, traditions, but it's an entertaining show. Yeah, for sure. And and I, I just love how they mix in the entertainment and the exaggerations with 
how life may or could have been with what we actually do know from that time period. Like a lot of the Viking culture was agricultural based. I mean, everybody thinks of them as being war based and they kind of were, but they actually had a very strong agricultural community. And so that's, I just like how they brought that in. And they, again, they tied together mythology with it and had them interact with gods here and there, stuff like that. Kind of showed how real person people could birth legends. So, yeah, I just that's just a fun show. I, I really enjoyed it. Agreed. So my second example also trades on folklore and legends, and that is Robin Hood. And just in general, I'll get into specifics in a second, but this is from English um, folklore. Historians doubt that there ever actually was a historical figure of Robin Hood, but there were some popular folktales and legends that caught the imagination of the time and kept getting repeated. And that's essentially what, why Robin Hood keeps coming back around again as a very popular source of material for movies. I mean, the definitive movie is probably one that most people listening to us have never seen. And that is the 1938 classic, uh, the adventures of Robin Hood that stars Errol Flynn it's widely considered to be both the best Robin Hood movie and the most faithful adaptation of the Robin Hood legends and folklore that we're familiar with today. Of course, I've never seen it. Of course, I have, but it's, a, again, it's from 1938. It's an old movie, but it's really well done. It's really well acted. More people have seen the more recent stuff, so... You've probably seen at least one of the five movies that have been made since the 1990s through to the present day. There have been five Robin Hood movies made, most of which have sucked. Yeah. The two best, well, if you just want to laugh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, the Mel Brooks movie. Oh, yeah, that's easily my favorite. Some people will, like you said, claim that as their favorite Robin Hood movie. Obviously, it's a satire. It's a comedy. But the fact that it's got to be mentioned as one of the best Robin Hood movies kind of tells you how bad the other Robin Hood movies are. (laughs) But generally speaking, most people think that the 1991 Robin Hood Prince of Thieves was the best Robin Hood movie other than the original Errol Errol Flynn movie, except for the fact that the glaring problem of the miscasting of Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner was kind of terrible and almost single-handedly ruins the movie. But the movie is that good that it can survive Kevin Costner. Now, see, I'm going to I'm going to call you out here cuz you okay. said almost ruins the movie <laughs> and I would say completely ruins the movie because it would be a really good movie if Kevin Costner could act. Yes, it, he was a very poor casting decision. <clears throat> he also took the character in a different direction as more of a crusader than the original um Robin Hood folktale. But that that whole idea of you know, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, I would argue, is the one of the reasons why the, the folktale 
survived again to the present day. Like we said earlier, some of these things go back so far in history. They may not have an actual historical basis. They go back to when people were not literate. So they were just passing on stories again. And the, the essence of this story is very attractive to people. And that's probably why it survived to the present day. Believe it or not, I read something on this once. <laughs> I found it really interesting, though, because it was on, you know, the whole article or whatever it was that I was reading. I don't even remember what it was, but it was about how Robin Hood may have been historically accurate. If I could remember exactly what it was, I don't remember exactly, but it had something to do with like there was a group of bandits that lived in the forest that would give part of what they stole back to the community so that the community wouldn't turn them in. And the leader of that band went by the, the moniker Robin Hood. So whoever was the leader at the time was the Robin Hood. Right. Again, historians do believe that there is potentially some historical basis, or it may just be kind of like what you're saying, an aggregation of stories with a similar theme where the, the mantle of Robin Hood kept getting put into the story because it was something that people were familiar with. But again, it goes far enough back that we can't say definitively whether or not there was one, which also opens it up to, well, then you can do not anything you want, but you can do a little bit more with the story. If if, people can't really argue, like some of the examples we'll get to later, you can argue historical accuracy on the ones that we've mentioned so far. You really can't. Because there's no real definitive historical record, especially when you're going that far back in history. And also it comes down to how much does it really matter? I mean, it's not, that's not the historical accuracy, because we're, we're talking entertainment, not documentaries. So it's usually not something that bothers most people. But it's almost like a pointless argument in a way for the examples we've used so far because it's not like a definitive historical account of these characters. Right. And I don't know if I explained it right, but there was kind of an equivalent of like in the princess bride, you had the dread pirate Roberts. Yeah. That was just like a title and it just kind of grew from there. And that was kind of how they explained how Robin hood may have actually existed. Yeah. Again, like I said, I'm not saying that he definitely didn't is that historians cannot say definitively that there was literally a guy. But there's all of these folk tales, and the one that you and what you're alluding to is one of the threads of thought that could explain a possible historical basis. Yeah. But again, that's all it is a possible historical basis. Right. I mean, the newer Robin Hood that came out a few years ago, definitely not, no historical basis on that one. Again, and I would argue that you probably get people taking more creative license with Robin Hood. I agree with what you just said. Yeah. But again, I think it's a lot easier for Hollywood and and other movie makers to get away with making entertainment based on this folktale when they can't, you can't point and say, that's not how it was. Right. Yeah, exactly. The most recent one that came out in like 2018. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that, that was that was a piece of crap movie. It was. And that's why, again, it's it's weird to say that 1991 is when the Kevin Costner Prince of Thieves won. There have been other things since then. But other than the Mel Brooks movie, I don't, generally speaking, people don't really think any of the other attempts to do Robin Hood 
were good, not because of a different adaptation. They just weren't good movies. I have a counterpoint, though. Okay. The Disney animated Robin Hood. A lot of people love that movie. Yeah, I, I, I was hesitant to go in that direction. You're right. That is probably... That and the Errol Flynn one is probably the two truly most popular ones. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't want to drift into animation. But yeah, I won't disagree with you. I'm going to take us to the next category and more or less more animation with exaggerated historical events for entertainment purposes that could be a path to myth or legend. And I'm going to start with 300. Which is a great place to start because it's based on a graphic novel. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, it's got monsters and things that are more or less animated, but they're kind of done in a way to make it seem almost realistic. Like, you know, you've got the magic characters, but it's kind of shown that it's kind of science-y that could be mistaken as magic when they're throwing the bombs that like explode with sparkles and shrapnel and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a really good movie. And like you said, based on a graphic novel that's very popular. And it is based on historic events that we do know actually happened. Yeah, this is a, a great example because 300, I mean, it's primarily based on Frank Miller's graphic novel series of the same name, mm-hmm. which itself is based on an actual historical thing. So it's a very fictionalized retelling of the Battle of Thermopylae which is an actual 5th century battle between the Greeks and the Persians. It happens. And yes, King Leonidas of Sparta led 300 of his soldiers against the Persians in the Battle of Thermopylae. That is where the historical accuracy ends. (laughs) Everything else about the movie is absolute fiction. Doesn't make it bad, but yes... There was an actual battle of Thermopylae that only 300 Spartans led by King Leonidas fought in. But nothing else about the rest, nothing about the rest of the story is even remotely accurate. (laughs) I know, right? I mean, in the movie, they had Spartans die and Spartans can't die. (laughs) Well, going back to your point is they had a mixture of both believable and unbelievable mythological elements Mm -hmm. like one of the things like they had talked about oh they have they have monsters that ride with them well some of them were a rhino and an elephant which to people of that time period because the persians had a big empire and they brought those animals from a different part of the world so greeks had never seen a rhinoceros or an elephant so it they would appear to be monsters yeah because they had never seen those animals. But then they also had actual monsters. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's kind of where I was going. But, but, and the same thing, like you had like the giants that were all grotesque and super strong. And that very well just could have been a very large dude that was just really ugly that would have looked like a monster to these people. Exactly. So the movie gives you a little bit of both, but it does have also kind of like that, like, freak show menagerie mm-hmm. of characters, which also could have just been people with deformities. So, I mean, there could have been a basis to it. And like you said, the, 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 the quote unquote magic was like people throwing like gunpowder bombs, which would look like magic. 
two soldiers who had never faced that type of a weapon before. So again, it it has a little bit of, of both elements to it. But I mean, the bottom line for me is it's an entertaining movie, right? Yeah. You know, it's not historic, like nothing about the depiction of the Spartan culture or religion, fighting style. Nothing about that is is even remotely historically accurate. But who cares? It's an entertaining movie. I mean, if it was not the Greeks and the Persians and it was just some completely made up story in some land that we've never heard of, no one would even care about arguing over whether or not it's historically accurate. It's hinged on a, a real event and it just goes off into a fantastical direction. But bottom line is, it's an entertaining movie. So are you trying to tell me the Spartans didn't actually chest kick people into deep pits? <laughs> well, how do I know? I didn't live in the 5th century, so maybe they did. But like stuff like, I mean, like the, the movie makers explains like the fighting style in the movie was based on mixed martial arts and uh, a Filipino fighting style. Like it, they, they, there was no attempt to say, hey, what, what did, how did Greeks actually, they didn't care about that. It's like, we're making a cool movie with fight scenes in it. Right. What can we do that will look cool? That's what fed into how it looked visually. They didn't give a crap about, uh, is that the right shield? Is that the right sword? Is this the right, did they use, that, they, the, the movie makers did not care about any of those details. Again, not a documentary, a movie that's supposed to be entertaining. And it was. Quite entertaining, and I didn't care that it wasn't accurate. <laughs> but you have an example of a movie that people think is accurate, but actually isn't. Yes, this one is a little bit more halfway, a little bit more stuck in the middle of, it tries to be more historically accurate, but isn't. And I'm talking about Braveheart. So this is a the 1995 movie that was starred in and directed by Mel Gibson, a movie that actually won Best Picture and Best Director in 1995. Braveheart is very loosely based on the late 13th century Scottish warrior William Wallace. So he was a real person. He did lead the Scots in the First War of Scottish Independence against King Edward I of England. The film actually draws less from history and more from a 15th century epic poem. So it's almost more like Homer's Iliad. It's just a little bit more recent than that. So an epic poem was written in the 15th century commemorating what happened in the 13th century. So from 200 years before, writing an epic poem about an actual historic person and an actual historic series of battles but turned it into a myth. And that's actually what the movie is based on. So a lot of people have complained that it should have been more historically accurate. But Mel Gibson even said that like the people in the events per were portrayed in a way to be more cinematically compelling than historically factual. And even the historians that criticized the movie for its lack of accuracy even admitted that despite the fact that William Wallace is one of Scotland's most important national heroes, he lived in a distant past where so much of what is believed about him is probably just a legend. 
So, yes, he really was a person. Yes, he did really fight for Scottish independence. But what people know, even historians know of what he was actually like as a person and what he actually did is probably more fiction than fact, is probably more myth than history. Yep. But it's still a it's still a good movie, though. It's an entertaining movie. And again, it's also one of the few movies that maybe we're touching upon today that actually was well-received. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture. So the fact that it won awards leads down to the path of, I didn't really like this movie, and I don't remember much of it. It was almost as long as The Eternals to me. Well, to say, it's it's a slow burn. Yeah. One of the things I think that makes 300 stand out is it doesn't lull. It moves. It moves. It keeps your attention. Stuff is always happening, and it's always, you're, you're in it the whole time. Braveheart starts out really fucking slow, and it takes you almost halfway through the movie before it starts to get good. Yeah. And... I have the attention span of an adolescent gnat. <laughs> 300 is also this eminently more quotable because even its script is written with a bunch of just easily quotable lines. You know, the, this is Sparta! <laughs> I actually just Friday had somebody quote this movie to me. I'm a safety guy by trade, and I was talking to a guy about wearing safety glasses, and he was bringing up how... He was doing something, he was wearing a safety glasses and rocks kept hitting him in the eyes and like hitting his safety glasses and it still kind of hurt. But he's like, yeah, I'm not like that guy in 300. That would be like, God saw fit to give me a second eye. <laughs> he's like, I'm not, I'm not that kind of guy. I want both eyes. <laughs> <laughs> or things like arrows will blot out the sun. So we'll fight in the shade. Yeah. I mean, there's so many like just quippy, maybe stupid one liners layered all throughout 300 combined with like almost nonstop action sequences. That's what makes the movie so entertaining. Braveheart is slower. It tries to build up more of a story, add romantic elements to it, a little bit of a, a historical, like it tries to be more historical because it is based on something that's re more recent, but it's still entertainment. And it, it just essentially starts to devolve into a, let's just have, brutal fights and kill people. <laughs> yeah. Which is when the movies start to get good. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of like 300, um, both William Wallace and King Leonidas die at the end. <laughs> you probably found the only thing these movies have in common. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it, it, it does fall more into this category of it's definitely an exaggeration of a historical event, mm -hmm. but there is more of a historical basis for what we're talking about in this category than in the previous one. Yeah. They have been, as you said, a path to myth and legend, and the movies that we're talking about obviously lean more in that direction because it's supposed to be entertainment. Right. But in this category, you could argue historical accuracy because it is an exaggerated historical event or historical person. And then I, I guess my viewpoint on this is these ones that we're talking about here, 150 years from now, when these stories have been told different ways over and over, this may be, may become, Oh, this is how it actually happened because this is an earlier record. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. So th that could be the path to, th to the more exaggerated things later. 
like not to go off on a tangent, but like a lot of like modern or contemporary science fiction shows have made fun of that concept by imagining what the future will tell is the quote unquote history of the present and how they'll like tell like wildly stupid stories that we know is incorrect because we're here living through it. So yeah, who knows when that game of telephone gets stretched out another couple of centuries, how these stories could change uh, even more than what they are now. And jokes on them, we couldn't be more stupid. <laughs> Similar to that, my next example is the movie Tombstone. And you could even wrap up uh, the Wyatt Earp movie with, again, the terrible acting of Kevin Costner, which is why I don't count that movie. Tombstone <laughs> is a much better movie. It's mostly accurate to what we know actually happened, but it takes a lot of liberties. But because it's so popular... People are now thinking this is actually how it happened and actually who those people were. So, like, we know, like, if you actually look back and read into it, we know that Wyatt Earp was actually a much more shady person and had a very, very outlaw background before moving to Tombstone or before even moving to, um, what was it, Kansas City, where he started his in-law? Yeah. But before that, he was an outlaw, and he kind of went into being the law enforcer in order to escape persecution for being an outlaw earlier. And so these movies erase that history, turn him into this just really good dude trying to protect everybody. And it's a great movie. I find it inspirational. Brandon's been on here before, and we've actually... <laughs> It's fairly accurate to say that personality trait-wise, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp in this movie are very similar to Brandon and me in uh, the personality clashes, but somehow we're still friends. <laughs> yeah, I would, uh, to your point about Wyatt Earp's history, I mean, in, in the American West, the difference between criminal and police or criminal and law enforcement was much more blurred yeah. than it is today. So yeah, there were a lot of times where historical people who were known for being in law enforcement in that time period had themselves a criminal past. But to, like you said, this is loosely based on actual events and actually probably the most recent events that we've talked about so far, because this goes back to the 1880s. So it's not too far away loosely based on events that happened in Tombstone, Arizona, including the gunfight at the OK Corral. Pew, pew. Uh, it does feature a lot of Western lawmen and outlaws, actual fictional accounts of actual people, most notably uh, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. And when I think of this movie, I mainly think of Val Kilmer's just fucking incredible performance as Doc Holliday. Oh, yeah. Is the thing that makes this movie for me. But again, they're both playing fictionalized versions of real people, so we do know a fair amount of, of a fair amount about their history. <laughs> the The actual gunfight at the OK Corral, the historical event, lasted all of thirty seconds, <laughs> and that's all it that really lasted in the movie, too. Right, exactly. It it's, it was a build up to this thing that kept boiling, and then it was this one burst of gun violence that became one of the most popular true stories from the American West. And that whole outlaw law enforcement thingy 
is probably is, is part of the reason why the American West is mined so often for lots of movies, fictionalized or otherwise. But this happens to have a, a much stronger historical basis than some of our other examples. Right, exactly. Still fictionalized. And it is weird to me. You mentioned the other movie. Wyatt Earp weirdly came out six months after this movie. I mean, Hollywood has a, a tendency to, to copy itself anyway. But Tombstone and Wyatt Earp came out the same year. It's no comparison. Tombstone is a vastly superior movie. And Wyatt Earp tells more of the story. Yeah. So if you want more of the story, I guess you could watch Wired Earp. But if you want the better movie, you should watch Tombstone. <laughs> For sure. And the better acting and the better everything else. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, Tombstone is hands down the superior movie. So again, creative license is taken, but not like ridiculous creative license. Right. It's still, again, it's, an, it's not a documentary. It's entertainment. And it's a really entertaining movie. And in this case, the parts of reality that may get lost in the future from this ultimately don't really matter to the core of the story and the core of what actually happened. True. Your next example here is one that I wasn't 100% sure how reality-based it really was. Yeah, and that is the movie Gladiator, which is the loosest of the examples in, well, I don't know, probably... 300 is the loosest, but Gladiator is very loosely based on some real events that occurred in the second century Roman Empire. So as such, it does include some fictional depictions of historical people, but Russell Crowe's uh, Oscar-winning lead character is not one of them. But also, again, this is going back to the second century. So it's going back so far in time that it's harder to say what was fact and what was fiction, but most of it is fiction. But it has at least a loose basis on giving us a possible, the gladiator activities were real. So that, that, that is something that actually happened in ancient Rome. Whether it happened exactly the way it's depicted in the movie, that's obviously up for debate. We do know they did actually have swords. Yes, it is a, effectively conveys like the intensity of the gladiatory, uh, gladiatorial combat and the politics of the Roman Empire of that period, but it's as much entertainment. It, it, it's entertainment. It, it often strays from anything remotely rem resembling historical accuracy. Probably. Yeah. Again, I mean, you know, it, the, the filmmakers admit it because the other thing, too, that was an influence on this movie was not so much the the stories of ancient Rome. The other thing that were great influences on this movie was Hollywood films that had been previously made about ancient Rome. So things uh, like uh, The Fall of the Roman Empire, Spartacus, Ben-Hur, which were very popular movies in Hollywood in the early 20th century, and elements of those movies were borrowed to make this movie a more entertaining movie but that, again, didn't add any type of historical accuracy to it at all. So it's definitely fuzzy. Yeah. Much fuzzier than either Tombstone or Braveheart that we just mentioned. <laughs> but it has some believable basis in history. But obviously, it's mostly fiction. Even some of the historical people who are named in the movie, their stories are not historically accurate. 
or even some of the events that happened in the movie are not historically accurate. But it's an entertaining movie. So you mentioned Spartacus, and that's actually one of the TV shows I do like. I meant the movie Spartacus. I know you did, but... There's a TV show. There's a, Yeah, there's a TV show called Spartacus, which is also interesting, too. Yeah. But this particular movie predates that, and this just was drawing on the influence of... The, when they made Gladiator, it was they, they said that they wanted to try to make a more accurate depiction of ancient Rome, but that was comparing it with the far less accurate depictions of ancient Rome in earlier Hollywood movies. So it's a more accurate, still inaccurate depiction of ancient Rome. <laughs> Are you trying to tell me that Caligula isn't historically accurate? Well, again, I don't, I don't want to go off on tangents. There's all, all <laughs> sorts of things we could get into. But again, almost everything we're talking about today, if, if historical accuracy is what you're looking for, very little of what we're talking about in this episode is about that. This is about historical reimaginings of things that may or may not have a loose basis in history, but they're made into better stories when they lean into the mythological or legendary aspects, or maybe the actual original historical accounts got embellished to make them more interesting because the historical accounts were probably fucking boring. Yeah. And then the more interesting story got told and people remembered the more interesting story because it was more interesting. Which is kind of funny because both of your most recent examples here, I found so boring that to me, they're basically the same movie. <laughs> and Braveheart and Gladiator, I actually remember kept hesitating watching them and I ended up buying them together in a package DVD. It was like, here, get two award-winning movies for the price of one. <laughs> and I'm still not sure I've watched them. <laughs> I've, I've only had them for probably 20 years. Well, they also fall into that category of movie that we've also said in the past that we usually both stay away from. If it gets award recognition, we typically don't watch it. Right. And both Braveheart and Gladiator were... I mean, Braveheart won Best Picture. I, I think Gladiator just won Best Actor for Russell Crowe, but they were both nominated. Yeah. And Braveheart won Best Director for Mel Gibson. So they both got a lot of... And it also was one of the things that sometimes happens in Hollywood. If they do one of these historical reimagining epic things and they put some big name actors in it, it's almost like automatically going to get at least nominations, even if it's just a piece of shit. Well, my next example in the next category definitely did not get nominations <laughs> because it is largely disliked, but I actually really like it. What what is the category what is the category again? The category's reminder is stories that are loosely based on historical events or time periods. And my first example here is the movie King Arthur. And I'm talking about the Clive Owen led movie and I just found it interesting, it's very, very similar to Troy, where they make a realistic story with realistic people that may have inspired myths and legends. You've got, you know, the main cast of characters of, you know, Arthur and Lancelot and whatnot of, of being like chivalrous knights. But I also really like how they had Merlin as just a Celtic warrior that just did things again, more scientifically that made it seem magical. Like, you know, would create, you know, use burning hay to create a fog that to like an incoming warriors would seem like this person just conjured fog out of nowhere because they couldn't really see the flames or anything. So 
I, I just found that very interesting in itself. Um, it's it's an okay story with okay acting, but the thought behind it and the thought that it inspires for me is what makes this a good movie. For me, I, I would agree. For me, the King Arthur movies in general are similar to Robin Hood in the sense that historians cannot confirm whether or not King Arthur was a real person. They do speculate that there was a British warrior in the 6th century who battled against the Saxon invasion, and that he may have been the historical inspiration for King Arthur. But the Arthurian legend that grew up as a, a, a folktale around that and gained immense popularity uh, through the centuries is what captured the imagination and carried it into modern times. And the Arthurian legend is usually infused with a lot of actual magic and mysticism, and which is partially probably why it has inspired so many movies and television shows. The 2004 King Arthur movie that you're referring to is very notable to me in the sense that it actually did attempt a more grounded less magical approach to the story. Right. So like you just said, that Merlin wasn't a wizard. He was just maybe someone who was crafty with science. And some of the other, like the pulling the sword from the stone is not in the movie either. So a lot of the, the magical and mythological elements are removed from the movie and it makes it more, potentially more grounding, grounded in something that, Maybe this guy was who inspired the actual myths. Right, exactly. Generally not regarded to be a great movie, but I wonder if part of that is because it is so different from the other King Arthur things. Probably. Which, again, like Troy, Troy isn't regarded as being a good movie either. No. Because it's it doesn't have the gods, it doesn't have the big epic parts, it's a more grounded, realistic version. Right. And that's what I like about it. Which which makes perfect sense. And like I said, it, it fits the theme of this episode that this could have been potentially the basis of the myths and the legends that we're more familiar with. And again, why, because of those myths and legends, it's why more King Arthur stories will continue to be told. Right. Along with that, what inspires me thinking about this is I'm, I'm one of those people that I'm always looking at, whether it's words or sayings or short tales, whatever it is, I like to think of, okay, what may have actually inspired this? What, how, how did thing, something evolve into this? What might it have started as before it got here? And so that's, that's what these movies, why they're interesting to me is they're starting at the end result of the myth and trying to work backwards and go, okay, what's something that could have happened that would have made this myth? And that, that's just the way that I like to think. You, on the other hand... <laughs> now, in this category, we get closer to something where historical accuracy, at least in my next example, could be argued. So my next example is the television series Murdoch Mysteries. So we said in this category, the stories are loosely based on historical events or time periods. Murdoch Mysteries is a, a long and still running... Uh, sorry, you had something first? Go ahead. I was going to say, is this the A-Team's Murdoch? No, it is not the A-Team's Murdoch. Sorry. Murdoch Mysteries is a 
long and still running Canadian television series that is about a, a fictional police detective, William Murdoch. It is set in Toronto in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So it is a turn of a century period drama, and it is a genre that you have no interest in criminal procedural. I'm out. The reason, yeah, the reason that it's interesting to me, and, and, and there are several shows that fall into this, but I'm only going to use Murdoch Mysteries as one example. This is set during the early days of forensic science. So again, I, I enjoy criminal procedurals in general. I like them as a period drama because now we're going back in time before the dawn of forensic science where all of the fancy CSI type stuff that we're familiar with in the modern world, contemporary world, doesn't exist yet. So the show does include some historically accurate of the time period forensic techniques, like fingerprints, for example, were an emerging approach to law enforcement at the turn of the 20th century. DNA, nowhere near that, and a lot of other techniques that we would know now. The ep- some of the episodes do feature anachronistic technology where Murdoch is also an inventor. So sometimes he'll invent some crude prototypes of a technology that does exist today, far ahead of its time, in part so that 21st century audiences can kind of relate to it a bit. So that happens as a little bit of a, again, they never go too far ahead, but sometimes they do cheat a little bit with some of that. A lot of future events Historical events are actually accurately foreshadowed. And real history is actually an important element in many of the episodes. And the plots of those episodes, although completely fictitious, sometimes do involve real people and real events. Although it's definitely not intended to be, nor is historically accurate, for a non-documentary series... It's probably more historically accurate than not. So it's entertaining. It's primarily a drama. It has some good comic relief to it. It's, I think, on its 15th season or about to start its 15th season. So it's been around for a long time and they're still making new episodes. And, and I enjoy it. Again, it's time period drama. All the things we've talked about in this episode, it is definitely the most historically accurate but it's still loosely based on that turn of the 20th century time period. So Canadian murder solving for 15 seasons? Yep. There haven't been enough murders in Canada to go 15. How many moose do you have to investigate? (laughs) It's a show that has probably become a victim of its own success. That it's probably gone on longer than it ever imagined it would. In fact, you know who Colin Mockery is, right? Yeah. From Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yep. He once joked that he was the only actor in Canada who had never been on the show. (laughs) So they created a character for him, and he has been a recurring character on the show for like the last four seasons. Nice. But that's how, again, the weird popularity of it that has been going on for 15 years, and it's a Canadian show... And yeah, no one probably expected them to make as many episodes and for this to go on as long as it is. So it's a really popular show for people in a particular genre. Again, especially 
It combined, if you like criminal procedurals and turn of the 20th century period dramas, it's a perfect fit. So you know, you know what I took from all of that? What's that? I'm glad Colin Mockery has work. I mean, he's he's severely underrated. <laughs> His character is actually freaking hilarious because William Murdoch is kind of like a genius and his character is intimidated and annoyed by William Murdoch's genius. He plays a private in, an, a private investigator and he concocts these amazingly elaborate crimes to basically just prove he's smarter than Murdoch. And they're actually pretty fucking awesome. So he's a really entertaining. And again, a lot of real people from history have been portrayed by famous guest stars, including, again, it wouldn't matter much to us, but like members of the Canadian government have played members of the Canadian government on the show. <laughs> Obviously, historical versions of the people who serve in their current positions, but it's been in a pretty impressive, again, late 19th century, early 20th century portrayal a lot of fictionalized versions of real people have appeared in episodes on the show how many famous canadians are there in history it's not just famous Canadians; it's famous people of the time <laughs> period a lot of the famous people in fairness come from the united states and europe okay so famous scientists famous politicians famous cultural icons have been on the show and again it's it's run for such a long time there have been a lot of really awesome guest appearances again it's fictionalized a lot of creative license is taken but it's plays pretty close to believable historical accuracy even though that's not what it's trying to do it's not a documentary series obviously it's exaggerated if they're saying that there's mean people in canada that would murder people <laughs> well again one of the things not to go down this rabbit hole too far it does accurately depict the turn of the 20th century, because one of the things in the show is Murdoch is a Catholic. And at that time in Canada, Toronto was run by Protestants and Protestants and Catholics have a long history, not just in Canada, but Murdoch's career advancement potential is greatly limited because he's a Catholic. So there's a lot of episodes that actually deal with historically accurate social issues like that. As well as things like it's it's set before the suffrage movement. Women don't have the right to vote. So there's a lot of episodes about the women's right to vote and what professions women can have and what role they have in society. So a lot of serious, historically accurate social issues are incorporated into the show. Again, it's a drama, occasionally has comedic elements to it. It's not trying to be a documentary series. It's entertainment, but it's thought-provoking entertainment. Fair enough. I'm just going to assume from my head canon that all the murderers are actually Americans that went to Canada to kill people. And speaking of insatiable bloodlust. <laughs> I, I was only going to say that every criminal procedural show that has ever existed in any time period always has that problem. Think of all of the police shows that are set in New York City in contemporary times. If there were as many murders in New York City as all of those police shows that are on TV now actually depict, there would be no one left alive in New York City. <laughs> but back to your insatiable bloodlust. What is your next example? Insatiable bloodlust. 
So my next example is Dracula Untold, which again, I think is an underrated movie. It's not a great movie, but it's underrated. And so for the historical events, it's actually based on the idea of Vlad the Impaler defending his country from the invasion of the Turks. And it has been said that the original story of Dracula was loosely based off of the idea of Vlad the Impaler. So there is that a little as well. But I just think this is a very interesting movie of a lot of times when you're talking about Dracula, it's, you know, this guy was was cursed with, with this disease, whatever you want to call it. And in this particular case, he chose it. And he chose it in order to defend his country and his, his wife, his child, etc., etc. And ended up burdening himself with this for eternity in order to do what he needed to do for his people. And I found it to be interesting and fun. But then at the end of the movie, when he had a vampire army, and that vampire army was going to go after the living that he just tried to save, he killed all of them. He got rid of all of his underlings, his entire army that he had built, in order to save the people that he was trying to save when he became the monster to start with. So what I like about the movie has nothing to do with the historical parts of it. I just think it's a fun movie, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah, I mean, I watched it recently with you. It is one of the few Dracula movies, I think, that actually tries to establish somewhat of a historical angle of like you said, the Dracula story from literature is based, like you said, does have a historical basis of it was based in part on Vlad the Impaler. Even though it was complete fiction, he was the inspiration for it. Right. So a real person became the inspiration for the story. And this actually tries to maybe almost show you how, obviously it's fiction, but how that might have actually happened how that could have been mm-hmm. the basis. Obviously, that's not... Vlad the Impaler wasn't actually a vampire, but most Dracula movies just go directly at the... He's a vampire, and not too much of the... How did he get there? What's it based on? Or a historical context, or a reason for it. So, it is a different take on Dracula, which I think fits well into that category of loosely based on a historical person who may have actually been the inspiration for the actual myth of Dracula. Yeah, exa- exactly. I mean, there's a lot of Dracula stories. In Dracula movies, I don't know, to me, there's there's a lot of them that are really well acted, but they're boring. Yeah. And then there's some that have, like, really cool stories, but they're not well acted. And this one is just kind of a right in between of okay acting and okay story, just enough to be entertaining. Yeah. It's not bad. That's it. (laughs) And then we came to the end. So my second and final example again in our third category of stories loosely based on historical events or time periods is the television series The Great. (laughs) (laughs) What a great way to end. Oh, so this is a... Huzzah! (laughs) Huzzah! This is a comedy drama satirical television series. It is very loosely based on the rise to power of Catherine the Great, Empress of all Russia in the 18th century. 
So again, still far enough back, but relatively recent history, only a couple hundred years ago. But the show's tagline is an occasionally true story. And it runs on Hulu. And even Hulu describes the show as (laughs) (laughs) anti-historical. And they have told people that viewers should abandon any expectation that they will learn anything useful or even remotely true about Russia or any of the people, any of the real people depicted in the series. So you're warned about that going in. So it is based on a real person and a real pivotal moment in actual history, but you should not expect historical accuracy. However, I have to admit that that ended up bothering me because I really enjoyed the first season of the show. There's only been two seasons so far. I enjoyed the first season because it, it was relatively historically accurate. I mean, very relatively, very loosely <laughs> historically accurate. Five minutes into it, you know it's not actually accurate. Again, like I said, I'm not trying to say it's accurate. It's like, it's not, it's not way the fuck out there. It's believably relatable to history in the first season. And it also worked for me because the first season, when I watched it, it felt like I was watching two shows in one. It's a comedy drama, but the first season had a lot of dramatic scenes where those scenes in isolation were so well-written and well-acted and dealt with serious issues that were close to historical issues that I almost kind of wish that the whole show was like that because of how well-written and well-acted those scenes were. But the second season throws all of that completely out the fucking window. The second season devolves into, it turns into a sexual comedy and just like a demented romantic comedy and all attempts to even be vaguely historically accurate are thrown out the window. Again, I shouldn't be mad because I was warned by the showrunners and Hulu that this would happen, but it still irked me enough that I basically lost all interest in the series because it just went off the rails in the second season. Although the second season, a lot of people seem to have liked the second season a lot based on its critical response. I did not for a variety of reasons, but definitely because I guess I ultimately wanted a more historically accurate series, and that's not what the show is. So similarly, but very opposite to you, I actually really liked the first season came out and I started watching it and I was really excited about the comedy because that's that's me. So I loved it for its comedy. Did not care at all about the historical accuracy. The dramatic parts I thought were needed to offset the comedy. The second season I also didn't really like. And the reason I didn't like it is to me it became too dramatic because it wasn't funny. Like there, there were lines in it. There were supposedly comedy parts to it, but they weren't actually funny. And so I was like, in in my head, I'm going, they're trying too too hard to make these dramatic tensions and these dramatic storylines, and they're forgetting about the comedy part, or they forgot how to do the comedy part. 
and you saw it the opposite where they abandoned all drama and went all comedy. Well, I, I didn't say that I found the second season funny, but they were trying to be funny. It wasn't funny. And the reason why it wasn't funny for me is almost the entire season is sexual comedy and then turns it into like a demented romantic comedy, none of which is funny to me. Some other people who have watched the show think it's hilarious and really enjoyed it. To me, it lost all of the drama. Sometimes you define, if it's not funny, you call it drama, correct? If it's a more serious tone, to me, that's drama. Because see, to me, I didn't even see a, a serious tone. There was every now and then they dropped a couple of lines of implying something serious, but it almost immediately went back to sex and romance and just stupidness. Maybe I would have been okay with it if those parts were... F I, didn't put, I didn't find those parts funny. Yeah, I didn't either. I mean, it didn't work for me on either level. Both the, I, like, I appreciated both the drama and the comedy of the first season. The first season had a lot of comedy in it. I found it funny. But I also really appreciated the drama. Both of those elements disappeared for me in the second season. Yeah. For me, unfortunately, it is back to it's my own fault because the show warned me about this. I wanted a loosely historically accurate story and that gets completely abandoned in the second season. It wasn't, it had only a barest foothold on it in the first season, but it just completely let go of it in the second season. But again, it, it fits in this category that we're talking about because it is loosely based on an actual historical person, uh, historical people. Catherine's not the only historically historical person that's on the show, but she's the main one. And it does the historical event of how she becomes the Empress of Russia and leads Russia into a renaissance is something that really happened. But you're not going to learn Russian history. You're not going to learn history. Again, if you're watching that show, you're watching it because you want to laugh. Not to expect historical accuracy from it. So we're wrapping up here, and I do have one more example that's going to make you want to end this as quickly as possible. It is based on historical events. No! Cannibal the Musical. No! Oh, yes. It is loosely based on historical events. Very, very, very loosely based. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. It is incredibly loosely based on historical events. And it's probably one of the best movies we mentioned today. No, it is one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> we have an entire episode on that horrible quote-unquote movie you can listen to if you want. Or you can join the millions of people who have not listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> or seen it. Or seen it, or even heard about it. But this episode is history, and that's no myth. Maybe the download numbers will be legendary? I'm, I'm thinking no. Probably not. This is going to be uh, lost in time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Fanboy and the Hater. We really appreciate it and would love to hear your feedback. Give us a rating. Write a review. Reach out to us on Twitter at Fanboy and Hater. Email us at thefanboyandthehater at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on our website, fanboyandhater.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Where you can download the free Podbean mobile app for Android and iOS. 
You can also find us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more. Once again, thanks for listening to The Fanboy and the Hater. <laughs>